Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to Save Your Sanity. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. I'm delighted that you're here. I hope you've been a guest before and heard things that brought you back. And if you're new, I'm delighted that you found me. There's so many things to understand about how our world is affected when we have had a toxic person in it. And you know, I created the term hijackals so that we didn't need clinical diagnoses to talk about the patterns, traits, cycles, and behavior of difficult people. So tonight we're going to be talking about hijackal behaviors. And a hijackal is a person, my definition, of course, because I created the term, is a person who hijacks a relationship for their own purposes, and then relentlessly scavenges it for power, status, and control. So if you had a narcissistic person in your life when you were growing up, particularly a parent or a grandparent, someone who spent a lot of time with you, there were things that went into you that you may not even know got installed in your programming. And I want to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about um, seven unhealthy patterns you learn growing up in a narcissistic family, because these are like an operating system installation. When these things are being put into you, you may not even know because you have no experience. You don't know what's going on. You don't know. You just got here. You've never experienced a family before. You don't even understand the language. You don't have anything except, do these people look like they're safe and reliable, and they will not drop me, and they will keep me alive and fed? And that's what's important to you. So you are looking all the time. Do they look at me with a smile? Do they come when I I cry? How do they take care of me? Do they laugh when I Google? Uh, you're just taking in all this information all the time. And then we're born with a not fully developed brain. So the first five years of our life are just amazing growth points for our brain. And the first five years of our life, we're mostly taking things in emotionally, not cognitively in the sense that we're processing the information. We're seeing it, but we don't always make a lot of sense of it. We copy things. We imitate things. We know what the giants want us to do. And so we're shaped by all of that. So if you had a narcissistic person in your early years, maybe you even have that person around now, but if you had a narcissistic person in your early years, you wouldn't have even known you were being shaped. And in that installation of your operating system, if we want to use a computer metaphor, a software metaphor, 
There were installations for many people that had a little bit of malware, a couple of viruses, and maybe even some Trojan horses set to go off in our adult life. So I want to talk about that today so you can bring it clearly to mind. Ah, that's what that is. Yes, that happened repeatedly. And you may not have even really taken it in because you were just little. And that's what your family was. And the only experience you had of family were those people that you were born to and the people that they brought around you. So looking at these seven unhealthy patterns that you just take in through your pores when you're born into a family situation where there is narcissistic behaviors, it just becomes normal. You think that that's the way the world works, and you don't expect differently. So I want to really bring these things to your mind today to make them very, very obvious and clear to you. So the first one I'm going to talk about is indirect communication. And indirect communication means that they're not really there to meet your, the emotional needs of one another in a narcissistic family. They, they don't speak directly to you. Um, they're not really interested in you. They don't want to hear from you. They like the information to be going from them, the adults, down to the children. And they leave ambiguous messages. So that's a very tricky situation when you're little because they say things like, not, would, would you set the table, please? They say things like, well, someone around here ought to set the table. And you get this very indirect messaging that goes on. And they actually, narcissistic adults to the children, they actually discourage you open communication. They don't really want anyone talking about their feelings or um, especially the parents do not want to share those things with the children. Now, of course, you could say that there are times when they ought not to, and you're absolutely right. But there's that lack of open communication, and they, it's actively discouraged. And the children are, you know, that I'm sure, and of course I'm making this up, but I feel sure that that phrase that children should be seen and not heard was created by a person with narcissistic tendencies. <laughs> because why would you not want to hear from your children unless they were inconvenient unless you did not have any interest in them. And so that became a thing. Children should be seen and not heard because of this indirect communication that they prefer. Did that happen in your home? Was it hard to get a straight answer? Were you kind of second-guessing the giants? You know, what do they want? What do, what are they expecting of me? Can I get it right? Is it possible to get it right? And it, it could be very scary. It didn't feel like a safe place to be at all. And that could have happened to you. And it's important to recognize that those things are all part of growing up where narcissistic influences are in your family when you were a child. Very important to see and to recognize that that's part of the programming, that's part of the patterning, and it's what you would have thought of as normal. 
Like you don't go directly to your parents to say, I feel awful, because when you go to a parent to say, I feel awful, they'll say, well, you know, pretty much tell someone who cares, or that's inconvenient, or suck it up, buttercup, or or whatever, because you are an inconvenience to a narcissistic parent when you need something from them. So you learn to communicate direct indirectly because you observe indirect communication. And it could be something that you may find yourself doing now. And that's why I want to always invite you to ask yourself, are any of these things, things that I've been told are happening in my primary adult relationships now that I'm grown? Because you may not even notice, because this was your primary teaching place that you learned in your family. And you may just carry it on. Or maybe you learn differently. Maybe you learned, I hated that. I'm not going to do it that way anymore in my life. And good for you if you did. But if you didn't, don't beat yourself up. Just recognize that the programming that was given to you was a bit faulty and doesn't work in healthy relationships. And you want to be in a healthy relationship. So that's very important for you for you to notice and, you know, if you enjoy this part, this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a donation at patreon.com slash save your sanity. There you can give a little one time or you can go on a monthly plan of $5 a month or something just to support the work. So go there at patreon.com slash save your sanity if you find value from the podcast. So it's important for us to recognize that indirect communication because we might find ourselves now fearful to communicate directly because that is not something that was modeled for you. So we may be a little passive aggressive in our in our communication. We may be a little backhanded. We may not feel that we have the right to ask for what we need and want because that was never modeled for us in the family. And that's a big deal because as a fully functioning human being, you have the right to ask for what you need and want. Yes, you have to have the emotional maturity to ask the question and be ready to hear yes or no and be fine with the answer. Maybe you have a question about the answer, but not an expectation that the answer has to be the one you want. That's a sign of emotional maturity. But if we were raised in these other families, we may not even ask for what we need and want. And that would be something that that dynamic taught us. And then we don't do it. I come from a family of two hijackal parents and I'm an only child. I would ask for things of my parents, but I didn't ask for things outside the house because, well... The reaction wasn't that great in the house, but you don't ask people for things. You know, that was the way it was. And that, that was their message. Don't ask, then I don't have to be bothered with you. So there's number one unhealthy pattern. Number two unhealthy pattern is triangulation. Right? Instead of one person talking to one person and having that communication going back and forth, no, in a uh, home with narcissistic tendencies, they kind of tell A to tell B to tell C, you know? <laughs> um, it, it doesn't work very well. So A will say to B, you know, tell C that I want this, 
and instead of A telling C, and that's what makes the triangle. And when you have parents like that, you'll find that the parent will confide inappropriately, of course, confide in a child, expecting that the child will eventually tell the other parent. And we really see that going on when we have homes that are divided, homes where there's been a divorce or separation, and the children become messengers and pawns and weapons of divorce war. But it also happens in the home where there are narcissistic people because they, one parent will say to the child, well, you know, if your father really wants to know this, or, or they'll say, you know, I think that your father should, hoping that that will dribble on over. And so we get this triangulating form of communication. Again, it's indirect, but we need to notice that it's a triangle. It puts somebody in the middle, and usually that's the child. That's just unfair. It's not fair to put children in that position. Not not at all. And and furthermore, they use the child as a buffer to avoid talking to each other. So a narcissistic parent who doesn't want to deliver the message to their their mate will send it through the children because they they just use the children as a go-between. And they hope that the other parent will be nice to the child and accept the information. And then the parent who originated the information won't get the backlash, won't have to deal with the fallout. But it puts the child in a terrible situation, just awful. And it's very prevalent. And then one parent forms an alliance with the child against the other. That's what the... the extrapolation of that is that it turns into parental alienation. And that's what's happening in that whole piece. So we know how very difficult it is when you experience parental alienation and in any form. You know, I have clients who come to me from many places in the world who say, my child married a person with hijackal tendencies, and now we're not being allowed to see the grandchildren. How do we deal with that? There is this alienation. This There is this, we won't let you into the communication. We won't take you into the circle. If you want to find out, you have to go through another person to find out what's going on here. And then sometimes they simply exclude you. But this whole triangulation business it keeps the kids in ambiguity. You don't know what's up. You don't know who to believe. You don't know which side to take. And when you're a child, you have the DNA of both parents. And if one of them is narcissistic, you you equally feel for each of them and you want them both to like you and you want it all to work well. So it's very, very engendering of ambiguity. Like, I don't know what to do. And you can get really stuck there as a child to even stop communicating or just shut down. Or if you happen to be tending in the narcissistic ways, you can become manipulative yourself because now you have inside information. But the parent's preoccupation in a narcissistic home is to get their own needs met. And that's what drives the family relationship is the the narcissistic person getting their needs met. They don't care about meeting the needs of the children. 
So then this whole business of triangulation is putting the children in an awkward and terrible and unfair situation. So triangulation is number two. And number three is a lack of the parents being emotionally accessible to the children. So the 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 parents don't don't offer the children an opportunity to convey their abil- their um their conversations about feelings. They're not open to hearing what the child needs or wants about their feelings. And that becomes a kind of shut down state again. And that's very, very difficult because that, that sense that I don't want to hear from you, right? I, I just don't need to hear from you. I remember there was this saying when I was a child that if I want some music from you, I'll push the button. <laughs> and it, it just seemed to kind of fit. Like if if the parents didn't need to interact with me, they probably would have been happy not to have. But they, um, they had to take care of me, so they did. But, you know, when I'm working with clients, they tell me so frequently that, yeah, it was like that. It was like my parents just didn't didn't have any need for me. And my parents owned a grocery store, and we lived above the grocery store when I was, from the time I was uh, two to till I was, uh, I think, 11. And I remember, I was seven years old, I remember it so clearly because... I just have this physical memory of standing in the doorway to the room where my mother had her desk. And it was a Sunday morning. And I asked my mother if she would come and play with me. I remember I'm an only child, so there wasn't anybody else. So I asked my mother to come and play with me. And she said, oh, no, go away. I'm too busy. And I honestly remember saying to her, you're either too tired or too busy. I don't know why you had a child. And the look on my mother's face was something that really registered. Like she was just caught in, she didn't know what to do. But I remember deeply feeling like that, oh, there's nobody who cares because she's either too tired or too busy. And why am I here? What, what 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 am I supposed to do? And so parents that have lacking in their emotional accessibility to their children or don't even access their own emotions very readily will give the children the feeling that they don't have a place. And when you have that feeling, then you can really scramble to have a place in life. You can be really looking for that. So that can be an issue. So that's number three, the lack of parental emotional accessibility. And number four is being born into a family where there is narcissistic things going on, tendencies or behaviors, is number four is you will get caught in the ambiguity of very, very unclear boundaries. A, they don't want to set clear boundaries because they'd have to stick with them, and hijackals need to win in any moment. So they want to be able to change things to their advantage at any moment. So if you set a clear boundary and then you want to do something different, then you kind of feel like, oh, 
I shouldn't have said that in the first place. So the home becomes a place that's quite unsafe because of this lack of clear boundaries. And in a narcissistic family, children really don't have the right to think, feel, need, or want, or speak up. They really don't. Um, in the bottom line, emotionally, and they they don't really have the opportunity, the parents or whomever the narcissistic people are that are looking after them, don't actually give them the sense that the child owns their own feelings. They kind of feel like, I'll tell you how to feel. You know, I have you ever had that thing in your life where um, a parent's says to you, or you've seen some parents say to a child who's crying, you say, I don't know what you're crying for, but if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. That's so narcissistic in that it says that you're crying. I'm not interested in why you're crying. I'm not interested in your pain or your feelings. I'm interested in being the author of your pain and your feelings. I want to be the reason that you're crying. I want to be the one who upset you. And then if the child had said, well, you upset me, then of course that would be, you know, world war on again. But that happens. Does that sound familiar to you? Anybody ever say to you when you were a child, I'll give you something to cry about? It's a very, very complex set of circumstances that seems so straightforward, but it isn't. Because why would a parent want to give a child something to cry about unless they wanted to be the author of that child's feelings so they know why the child is crying? Because they're not interested at all in the feelings of the child. In fact, those feelings could be quite inconvenient. They don't want any part of that. They just don't. And hijackals, narcissistic people, sociopathic, borderline um, psychopathic people, um, they're just not interested in allowing any children to have any privacy. They don't respect the privacy of the child. They don't respect the privacy of the child to have feelings. Not only do they not respect their privacy in the home, they don't respect the privacy of the child's internal sense. And that really shows up. And it's a difficulty. And the parents actually extend that to believe that the child's possessions, the child's time, even the child's bodies are property of the parents. And and sometimes of a stronger, more powerful sibling. And that is a, just a travesty. You know, um, have you ever heard a parent say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, right? Like, like you don't even own your own body, your own feeling, your own thoughts. Other people have control over that. Think of the implications of that in your adult life. If you were given those messages when you were young, think about the implications for, do I have the right to speak up when I'm hurt? Should I say something when someone touches me inappropriately. I mean, you could expand it in all kinds of ways. And if we were born into a family that made this normalized, we might not realize that we can have a voice when we get older. We may need to have some help communicating. You know, so frequently people ask me, should I leave or should I go? And I say, should I leave or should I stay rather? And I say, unless there's physical or sexual abuse, stay 
until you feel like you are strong and that you are clear and that your decision-making is complete and that you have taken care of all kinds of things to empower yourself. You know, I mentioned it before. I'm writing a new book, my 17th book, and it's called Emerging Empowered, Breaking the Bonds of Emotional Abuse. And we want to be emerging empowered from relationships that don't serve us. So if we came from a home where we weren't allowed to be empowered, that we were kind of invisible and we were somewhat of a nuisance or an inconvenience, or we were under the thumb of someone who needed someone to control, we need to learn to respect our own privacy and know that we are not someone else's possession and we can speak up. We can speak up about what we prefer. And in my book, Kaizen for Couples, which you can get on Amazon, uh, I talk about the personal weather report, the strategy that I created that will always help you speak up and be clear in a non-blaming, non-gaming, non-shaming way that will help you and stand you in good stead in any relationship that you happen to be in. That book is Kaizen for Couples, K-A-I-Z-E-N-F-O-R, Couples. And you can find it on Amazon, or you can go to kaizenforcouples.com, and it will give you good information there. So really important and Just think about that. If a child doesn't own their own body, they really own nothing. They have no rights. That's the message that they get. I have no rights. And if you got that message when you were a child, it may definitely affect your relationship with yourself and with other humans as an adult. Because if you were thinking you had no rights, how do you get some? And then if you do get some, do you overextend and think, well, you know, I have all these rights now, and then you bend the twig too far in the other direction, and you have to come back to something that's healthy. But also, when you're dealing with a narcissistic family, there's going to be this unwritten rule that parents can break the rules, children cannot. And that's very confusing to kids. You know, it's like, you can't smoke. Don't you smoke? Don't you? Who do you think you are? Well, the parent's a chain smoker. I mean, that's an obvious example. But on the feeling level, the same thing exists. You have no rights, but I, I have all the rights. I can break the rules. You can't break the rules. Very confusing messages. And these do spin off into our adult relationships. Of course they do. And the children are expected to meet the parents' needs, but the children's needs are seldom met. And when they are met, it's usually because the narcissistic adult wants to be praised, wants to be validated, wants to be seen as this hero or heroine figure who met the needs of the child as though this were some superhuman feat that they accomplished instead of what they should be doing every day in every way. So that gets very, very complicated. And for that reason, if you're raised in a narcissistic family, you may not understand that you have the right to say no. And I'd go one step further, that no, in fact, is a complete sentence, and you have the right to say it. 
have you ever had the experience of wanting to say no, but not saying no? You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You don't want to upset anybody. You don't want to trample on anything. You want people to like you. So you don't say no. And then you get into resentment and fear and all kinds of things. But you say, oh, but you know, I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. I didn't say no. Well, you might look to see if in your background, you were raised in a family where you weren't allowed to say no. You were expected to meet the needs and do everything that you were asked. And I don't mean that you should say, no, I'm not going to wash the dishes, not that kind of no, but that no, you know, this, this, you can't hurt me. No, I don't like that. No, I prefer this. Now, of course, all kinds of examples are come up. Do you have to eat your peas? Yes, I mean, there's all kinds of things in there. But I'm talking about the emotional overarching concept of learning that, yes, you can say no because you have control over your own body. And, of course, when somebody is abusing you physically or sexually, it's very obvious that they don't believe that you have the right to say no. And so that could happen to you. Certainly happened to me. And I understand what it took to learn to say no, to learn to say no in definitive and very clear ways, and to be totally kind and totally honest at the same time. But we do have to learn that it's something that is developed. It's a skill. So number five of these unhealthy patterns you may have learned growing up in a narcissistic family is that Sometimes the parents are available when they're trying to look good to other people. You may have heard me say on the podcast before that narcissistic parents, in my opinion, have children for three reasons. One, to have someone to agree with them. Two, to have someone to do their bidding and serve them. And number three, to make them look good, to validate them by making them look good. And that's why the parents are sometimes available because they try to make themselves look good to others. And that is a really poor pattern. So you try to look good on the outside, but it has nothing to do with who you are on the inside. And that pattern can go very deeply into a child. And in that kind of a family then, because you can't rely on it being good at home, then you you get their, your needs met as a child quite by accident because you don't know how to get your needs met. These people are very inconsistent. And then when they want to look good, they put on this big show, which is why I say that hijackles paint a public picture of perfection and at home they provide a private place of pain because indoors you could never have that. Out where somebody can see them, all of a sudden you can have that very confusing for a child. And especially before the age of seven or so when the parietal and prefrontal lobe development happens, because they're they're constantly looking like, do you like me? Will you take care of me? You're constantly looking for survival needs and very emotionally based thinking children believe that they cause so much to happen because they don't have that full brain development to realize that they're separate from others. And so it's important to understand this particular number five, that when parents want to look good to other people, all of a sudden they're available to you as a child. 
And then you get home and you think you're going to have that great relationship with mom or dad or grandma. And, oh, no, now they're at home. They don't have any time for you at all. So it's very confusing when you're back alone in the family. And you learn that you can't count on adults. You can't count on other people. And that's a huge lesson to learn. Because if you can't, if you learn you can't count on adults, it's pretty simple to expect that you might take that into your adult life. That there would be an underlying feeling that you can't count on other humans. And that you shouldn't count on them. Now, of course, you count on them wisely and you observe them, but it is an expectation that we can count on one another. You know, in episode 115, the one that I'm always talking about, I talk about three hallmarks of a healthy adult relationship. There has to be equality, reciprocity, and mutuality. And sometimes you won't have that understanding or that ability, maybe, even to know that that those are good, healthy things if you've been raised in a home where there's no equality, there's no reciprocity, and there's no mutuality. And that's what happens when you're in a, a narcissistic family. And I say a narcissistic family because usually there's only one of them and it skews the dynamics of the entire family. Sometimes there's two, you know, lucky me, I had two. But sometimes there will be uh, a narcissistic parent and then the eldest child will follow in that footsteps or there will be a grandmother who was the author of the narcissistic parent, and now you have two of them affecting your life. So very important to notice. Now, number six is that you will be robbed of the feelings that you're entitled to. And um, I read some really interesting things on a website, uh, The Narcissistic Family, and it's by Stephanie and Robert Pressman. And I got this quote here I wanted to share with you. They wrote, children are not entitled to have, express, or experience feelings that are unacceptable to the parents. Children are not entitled to have, express, or experience feelings that are unacceptable to the narcissistic parents. Isn't that the truth? You know, I remember I was nine years old, and my parents were had been out, and I had a babysitter, and I'd had this babysitter many times. He was a seven year old, seventeen year old boy from next door, and he was going to teach me where babies come from. And he got caught in my, he was lying on my bed, and my parents came home, so he rushed off, and I decided to tell my parents what he was doing. And my parents response was this. My father said nothing. And my mother said, that's ridiculous. You have to be lying. Nine-year-old children don't know about those things. Now, I was wise beyond my years. I understand this. But I remember saying to my mother, well, if nine-year-old children don't know about these things, it must be happening to me because I'm telling you about this. And they got up and left the room never to speak of it again until I was 40. And I said, do you recall this conversation? My father said he never recalled it. My mother said, yes, you were lying about that because nine-year-old children don't know about sex. 
Okay, so here's an example, just right out of the pressman's work, that I was not entitled to have her express or experience feelings that were unacceptable to my parents. So imagine what happens when children disclose abuse as I did. You're not believed because it's inconvenient. It's unacceptable. They'd have to deal with something. And in actual fact, one of the things my mother said in that conversation was the neighbors, their child would never do anything like that. And those are our friends. And you're not going to come between us and our friends. So you must be lying. That's the kind of thing that happens when you're in a family like this right? And if it happened to you, notice it now and get some help. You know, you can always reach out to me. I have this new client opportunity for people. Go to beaclient.com. You can have a full one-hour session for only $97 at beaclient.com. Easy to remember, beaclient.com. Because if you're hearing truth today, if you're hearing something that happened to you, it will have had an impact on many of your relationships and definitely had a deep impact on how you view yourself. And this is important stuff. So if you're robbed of these feelings, so what are you supposed to do as a child? What are you supposed to do with your feelings? Well, the obvious answer is you're supposed to stuff them. If you insist on having them, you're supposed to stuff them or sublimate them, pretend that you don't really care, or deny them, or fake them, or forget how to experience feelings altogether. You can go into complete shutdown and just give up having feelings altogether because they're inconvenient and they're confusing and they cause chaos in the home and you can't get any attention from the parents and they don't want to hear about it. So you can go into shutdown. And that might be one of the seven unhealthy patterns that you witnessed and that you may have in your life to some degree. It may be something that is really worth taking a look at. So now let's look at number seven. It's a big one because it does spill over into adult life. And that is that you are expected to be a mind reader when you're a child in a narcissistic family. And, you know... <laughs> One thing that when I'm working with couples, which I do all the time, you know, either I'm helping people have a healthier relationship or I'm helping people see they're in a very unhealthy one that's not getting healthier. Um, either of those two things are the areas in which I work. And you can always find me at forrelationshiphelp.com if that's of interest to you and use that beaclient.com opportunity. But this one, this mind reading bit is a big thing because adults say things to other adults like, if you really loved me, you'd know what I want. Ugh, that is so wrong on so many levels. You know, I, I had a client once who said uh, her birthday was coming up and I said, oh, what are you going to do for your birthday? What would you like to have happen? And she said, well, if he remembers he would buy me some beautiful personal thing and take me out to dinner. And I said, are you going to tell him what you'd like? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. But, you know, if he really loved me, he'd know what I want. And I said to her, how about having a different birthday this year? How about you flip that and you say, if I really loved him, I would tell him what would make me happy. So I can demonstrate my love for him by telling him 
how to show up in a way that would really be great. And she was really puzzled by that suggestion. So when she came back the next time, I said, how was your birthday? And she said, well, he remembered. I said, great. She said, then he gave me a big box and I opened it and it was an electric frying pan and he asked me what's for dinner. And I said, apparently you didn't tell him what you wanted. She said, no, if he really loved me, he'd know what I want. And I said, so you are the author of your very unhappy birthday. That was a big moment for her. But if you had to engage in mind reading as a child, narcissists believe that their partner or their child should be able to read their mind and get whatever it is that's unspoken somehow through the ether and act on it. And so if you transfer that from the family into your adult relationships a little bit later, you might have an experience like the one my client had. And then nobody gets their needs met. You know, my client didn't get her needs met for her dream birthday. Her partner didn't get his needs met to show up as, look, I brought you this wonderful thing for your birthday. And they had a miserable time. So it's a lose-lose scenario when you're a child with narcissistic parents. It's a lose-lose scenario in an adult relationship that you might have. And kind of the, the mantra of it is, I will not get what I want and you will be a failure because you didn't provide what I needed. And that is an incredibly awful dynamic in which to live. And it is extremely passive aggressive. So I've given you seven unhealthy patterns that you may have picked up or observed in a growing up in a narcissistic family. And these things, unless they see the cold light of day and you maybe get some help with them, can really trip you up in having healthy adult relationships now. And so I wanted to bring them to light for you and have a conversation of that because if they feel familiar... Know that these things got put into your brain before you had this brain development that is so necessary at somewhere between seven and eight years old. And the learning went in, and you may not even know that it's been underlying your adult relationships now. So now that you see it, you have an opportunity to say, ah, now I know what it is. Now I know what to work on. And that was my hope tonight, that I would bring you some information that would really help you do that. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. You find me at 4 Relationship Help. And until we meet again, or you make an appointment at beaclient.com, I hope that you will treat yourself very, very well. No matter how other people have ever treated you in your life, treat yourself very, very well because you really do matter. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash save your sanity. 
Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon. 